1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection, as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord for us this evening. Sisters and brothers in our Lord Jesus Christ, as we continue our series on 1 Corinthians 13, we turn this evening to focus on Paul's fifth negative description of what love does not do. Last Sunday, we looked at the first four of these negative actions, that love does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, and it is not rude. And we saw how all four of these behaviors come out of fear. There are behaviors that arise out of fear. And another thing that we pointed out in the last sermon, but that we didn't really have time to flesh out in detail, was that um, these, these words that Paul uses to describe what love is not, these words that Paul uses to describe what love doesn't do, are words that he uses in other places to describe what the Corinthians are doing. And so Paul here in 1 Corinthians 13 is very directly speaking to the Corinthians and their situation. He's, he's looking at their behavior, at the situations in their church, and how they are responding to those situations. And he's saying that's not the appropriate response. That's not the response of love. 
And the same is true for our text this evening. Love is not self-seeking. Or to be more true to the Greek, love does not seek its own. Love seeks not its own. Remember that all of these words that Paul uses to describe love are verbs in the Greek. They're all verbs. And that can be a little bit difficult to to translate into English because we don't really have verbs to describe all of these things that that Paul uses in the Greek. But but this, what Paul's saying here is that, that love seeks not itself. Love does not seek itself. So what does this mean? What does it mean not to seek ourselves? What does it mean that love seeks not its own? Well, one of the great things is that Paul uses this exact word in another part of 1 Corinthians. And so I'd like for us also to turn there, if you still have your Bibles open. It's just a couple of pages before on page 1,783 of the Bibles in the pews. And this is a section where Paul is addressing a conflict in the Corinthian church about whether or not the Corinthians can partake of meat that has been sacrificed to pagan idols. And the, the, the thing is, the thing is that, that this was a big deal in ancient Greek society. The temples were the center of social life. All the meat that you could buy in the ancient world would have, been, would have passed at some point through the temple. All of the meat that you could buy in Greece would have passed at some point through the temple and been offered to the gods, and what was left over made its way to the market for people to buy. And so the Corinthians are saying things like, well, you know, the, the pagan gods aren't really real. They're, they're idols. They don't have any power. And so it's not that big a deal if we eat this meat that's sacrificed to idols, right? It's not that big a deal because idols aren't real. But even more important, more of an issue than whether or not they can eat this meat is whether or not they can go to the feasts that take place in the temple. The temple was the, the, the social center. It was where everybody went to do things. And so, like, um, th- this, this was how people would... would establish their place in society, how they would make connections. So it would, be like, it would be like today if your boss invited you to his daughter's birthday party. If your boss invited you to your daughter's birthday party and you thought, oh man, this will be really good. I can you know, get in good with my boss. I can make some connections with other people in the business. This is good for me. This is good for my job. This is good for my family. Except that in the ancient world, you would have had to go to a pagan temple to do this. And so, so okay, so let's read. 1 Corinthians 10, starting at verse 23. This is Paul's response to what the Corinthians have been arguing. Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. Nobody should seek his own good. That's the word that we're looking at today. Seek his own, seek its own, seek itself. Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If some unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put in front of you without raising questions of conscience. But if anyone says to you, 
this has been offered in a sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the man who told you and for conscience' sake. The other man's conscience, I mean, not yours. For why should my freedom be judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everybody in every way. For I am not seeking my own good. There it is again, seeking my own good. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. And then he ends it with 11 verse 1. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. The Corinthians are concerned about whether eating meat sacrificed to idols is okay or not. They really want to know, is it right or wrong? Is it right or wrong? But Paul doesn't care. Paul couldn't care less, honestly, whether eating meat sacrificed to idols is right or wrong. He has no interest in whether or not they eat meat sacrificed to idols. The problem that he sees in the Corinthian conflict is that they do not care for each other. They care only for themselves. And so they don't care if they go to their, their boss's daughter's birthday party in the temple and their neighbor who has recently converted to Christianity sees them there and falls back into idolatry. They don't care that they're putting their neighbor at risk of falling back into paganism, falling away from the faith. They want to be able to go to their boss's daughter's birthday party so that they can get a promotion, so that they can make their connections, so that they can be a respected member of society. They are seeking their own good and not the good of others. But Paul tells them nobody should seek his own good but the good of others. And this is why so many people say that this is the very heart, this is the very center of what Christian love is. Agape love, the love of God, the love that we're talking about in 1 Corinthians 13 follows the example of Christ. Like Paul says in, verse, in, in um, 10 verse 33 and 11 verse 1, I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow Christ. Christian love follows the example of Christ, who did not seek his own gain, but gave himself up for the sake of others. Human love, erotic love, the love that's born out of desire, this love that's born out of a need for something else, a need for someone else, can't do this. Erotic love seeks its own gain. Erotic love is born out of desire and it needs those desires to be fulfilled. Erotic love seeks its own interest because it is in its very essence a selfish love. A love of self. But this is 
the kind of love that our culture perpetuates. The same kind of love that caused the Corinthian Christians to go to idol feasts to better their own position in the high society elites of Corinth while knowing full well that it could cause their brother or sister in Christ to fall right back into paganism, right back into sin. How many of us have gone on selfish quests to find ourselves? How many of us have gone on selfish quests to find ourselves neglecting all of our responsibilities and forsaking all of our relationships so that we could take some time to figure ourselves out? We have a desire to know ourselves, to find ourselves, to figure ourselves out. And we have these feelings of wanderlust, of, of enemy, of wanting to be something other than what we are. And we convince ourselves that somehow, if I just didn't have any responsibility to these other people, then I could find myself. Then I could know myself. Then I could discover who I truly am without all these people. I need to find myself. But Paul tells us, love seeks not its own self. And of course, finding ourselves isn't enough either. No, when we come back, we then have to be ourselves. When I, uh, and this is, uh, this is, I thought this was kind of funny. I laughed when I put this part of the sermon together because when I, when I was in college, I got hooked on the show Dancing with the Stars. Do you guys know what that show is? It's, it's a show, yeah, most of you know, okay. For those of you who don't, it's a show where they take uh, celebrities and, and, and famous personalities and they pair them up with a professional dancer and they go through a whole season of dance competitions. And, and these celebrities aren't dancers. These celebrities aren't dancers. They're actors and athletes and politicians and writers. They're not dancers. And they have to go through this whole dance competition with their professional dance partner. And one of the things that the judges almost always say in the critique is just be yourself. Just be yourself. You just need to be confident in who you are. And that always cracked me up because what they always meant by that was be better than what you are. They're talking to writers and actors and politicians and athletes and telling them to be better dancers. But the way that they say it is be who you are. And I've found that this is often the case. That when people encourage us to just be yourself, to just be ourselves, they usually mean be better. And there's all of these self-help books that promise us that they'll help us be ourselves better. All these practical tips for making yourself more yourself. And it doesn't make any sense. How can you be more you than the you that you are? There is no other you than you. (laughs) 
It, it, it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense. And the reason it doesn't make sense is because it's not true. There is no other you than you. There is no better you out there somewhere that you can become if you just try harder. But that's what we're shown in society. That's what we create for ourselves. Lou Smeads, a CRC writer from the 80s, who we've been referencing a lot in this series, calls this the idol of the ideal self. He says that what we do is we create this imaginary self that we want to be or that others want us to be or that we want others to be, an imaginary self. And we set that up as the ultimate end goal in our lives. We set up that imaginary self as an idol. But let me back up a moment because I'm sure that some of you are probably thinking, but John, isn't, isn't it important that we know ourselves and that we be ourselves? Isn't it important? And the, the answer is yes. It is important to know yourself. It is important to be yourself. But the problem is that usually when we say that, we're not talking about ourselves. Usually when we say we, we, need to, we need to find ourselves or that we just need to be ourselves, we're talking about an us that isn't really us. We're talking about an us that doesn't have any responsibilities or doesn't have any obligations, not the real us. Usually, yeah, I, okay, so I want to tell you guys a story about a friend that I had in college. This is a difficult story. I had a friend in college who just one day decided that he was done. Decided that he was going to break up with his girlfriend of five years and drop out of college and go to Japan to find himself. And he stopped over at my house and he told me what he had done. And I was so angry. I was so angry that I actually slapped him, which I don't do all the time. <laughs> and I told him in my anger that he didn't need to find himself, that he just did, that he's right here, and that he's a jerk. And the problem with my friend was that he was losing himself in his quest to find himself. He was losing himself in his worship of his ideal self. He created this ideal self, this ideal self which was adventurous and culturally knowledgeable, who had traveled the world and lived in foreign places and learned a different language and eaten foods that you couldn't get in West Michigan. But in his quest to reach this idol that he had created, he abandoned everyone that he knew. He failed in every responsibility that he had ever been given. And he broke every promise that he had ever made so that he could find himself.
there are two problems that come up when we seek our own selves. The first is that we commit idolatry by holding up something other than God as the most important thing in our lives. The ideal self becomes the, the goal of our life, becomes the end of our life, the purpose of our life, instead of being a means to serve God or to serve others. When we seek our ideal selves, when we seek to become who we think we should be, then everything else becomes an instrument for our own self-actualization. Even things that are good, even things that are good like self-control and self-denial become nothing more than tactics for attaining our ideal selves. So we exercise even though we hate it because our ideal self is in good shape. We, don't, we, we, we do juice cleanses even though we can't stand them because our ideal self is healthy. We don't fast out of concern for our brothers and sisters around the world who go to bed every day hungry. We diet for ourselves. Self-control becomes a tool for my own betterment. And even other people become simple stepping stones. And so we treat them well and we love them when it's good for our ideal self. So we fall in love and we get married and we have kids because we've always wanted to fall in love and get married and have kids. But then our ideal self changes and, and our, what we want changes and so we trade them out for a younger model, one that comes with a sports car or a boat maybe. We're respectful and we're obedient and we're attentive toward our boss because we've always wanted a good job where our boss likes us. But then we want our boss's job. And so we turn in a few terrible performance reviews to upper management so that we can have that corner office. People become tools that I can use on my path to become myself. But this is the second, the second problem with the ideal self, and that's that it's always changing. It's always changing. With every fashion magazine, with every Ikea catalog, every movie, every advertisement, every promotion, our ideal self changes. As soon as you reach what you thought was your ideal self, you realize that there's a better you out there. And if you could just work a little harder, if you could just get rid of this one little responsibility, if you could just change this ideal self that you see could be you. And the idol of the ideal self is demanding. Our ideal selves require us to work constantly, to devote ourselves entirely, to worship relentlessly. Then you can be who you really are. The bigger, stronger, faster you. The slimmer, prettier, sexier you. The smarter, richer, respectable you. Still you, but better. And all you have to do is work harder. The idol of the ideal self is demanding. It can never be pleased. Because when we seek ourselves, we inevitably hurt others. And that's not anybody's ideal self. Nobody's ideal self is a mean person. But seeking ourselves makes us mean. 
It makes us selfish. It makes us not care about others. And so the idol of the ideal self is never pleased, always demanding more, always demanding better. We are never good enough. So how much comfort does it bring us then when God tells us in his holy word that he is the one who makes us and molds us, shapes us to be who we were meant to be? God doesn't demand that we work until we deserve his grace. God gives us his grace first and makes us worthy. The work of Jesus Christ on the cross takes away our impurities, takes away our sins, takes away our evil, and makes us new. We don't really have that much to do with it. This morning I used John Calvin and the early church too as, as friends to help me explain things. So I think it's only fair if tonight um, I borrowed some wisdom from a medieval Christian. We got the early church and the Reformation, so tonight's a medieval Christian. Hadevike of Antwerp, who I'm sure you're all very familiar with. Just kidding. Hadevike of Antwerp was a Dutch mystic in the 13th century and also happens to be one of my favorite people in the history of the world. And in her writings, she describes this vision that she has where God takes her up in the spirit and shows her this beautiful woman. This beautiful woman, and this woman is clothed in a white dress of holiness and adorned with a golden robe of virtue, and all creation praises her as she comes to Jesus. And an angel asks her, do you know who that is? And Hadavik says, yes, that's the bride of Christ. And the angel says, yes, and it is you. And Hadavik says, how can this be? I am not clothed with holiness or adorned with virtue. I've worked all my life to be a good person and still, still it escapes me. I still sin and I still go wrong and I still can't do what God calls me to do. And the angel says, the woman is you, for I have made you perfect. Now go and be who you are. And Hadavik realizes that the angel is Jesus. And when she reflects on, on this vision, she admits that, that being a perfect woman has become the most important thing to her. And that becoming her ideal self had become the most important thing in her life. And that was her mistake. And she writes to one of her friends that we must deny ourselves to become who we are. We must give up the idol of our ideal self and embrace what God has already made us to be. One of the things that I found so amazing about this series on 1 Corinthians 13 is that when, when we look at God's 
love, this agape love that we're talking about in 1 Corinthians 13. It's this, this, the word that Paul uses, the word agape. This word means the love of God. It refers specifically to the love of God. And Paul is telling the Corinthian Christians that they need to love with God's love. And this just continues to amaze me. It continues to baffle me. It continues to surprise me. This idea that we can love with God's love. And in a way, that sets us free from this ideal self. Because it's not a love that we have to work really hard to do. It's a love that we just have to let God do. Loving other people is hard work. can be. But what Paul tells us here in 1 Corinthians 13 is that we're not the ones who do the hard work of loving others. God does the hard work of loving others. And all we have to do is to let God love through us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. O Lord our God and our King, we thank you for the love that you have for us. We thank you that you send us your Holy Spirit to fill us so that we can love others with the love that you show to us that we can love others with your love. Lord, we pray that you would set us free from the idols that we create for ourselves, of ourselves. Lord, we pray that you would set us free, that we would allow you to work through us to make us who you have already made us to be. We love you, O Lord. And we pray all this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.